Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zaffaro, and this is the Season 5 premiere episode. And uh, we got a lot going on in this episode, and for starters, uh, a very special guest co-host, Eric Beatner. Hi, Frank. Hey, I only I figured it was only fitting for you to come on the show since uh, your your podcast writer types was the inspiration for me wanting to start a podcast in the first place. Well, I'm always happy to be with you. <laughs> now, um, for people that don't know you, which if they listen to this podcast, they are not they, paying attention. They darn well better know me. <laughs> so, g- give us the thirty seconds. Who is Eric Beatner? Uh, well, I'm a crime writer, and uh, I have 27 published titles to my name. So, uh, you know, some of those are noir, some of those are thrillers. There's a couple of westerns thrown in there. Three of those novels I co-wrote with you, good sir. The List trilogy, the Bricks and Cam books that were a ton of fun. Uh, and I think, you know, to get a sense of my style and what I do, I think those Bricks and Cam books are actually a pretty good place to start. You can jump in with those books, and you can be like, all right, I get it. Uh, if, if you like those. Follow the rabbit hole and, and check out the rest of my work. You'll you'll be richly rewarded. Yeah, I I have to agree with you. I I think that they uh, definitely there's a a big overlap on the Venn diagram with your other with your other stuff. And and uh, I tell you, some of the most fun I've had collaborating has was on those titles because they just went so fast and and uh, lots of action, lots of mayhem, but also some humor. Some of it a little bit. <laughs> gross <laughs> yes uh, for those who don't know bricks and cam uh are both hitmen um and so you can imagine what i'm talking about when i say gross uh, those books were originally published by down out books or they're now uh out from uh, my imprint code for press um but down and out books is the a sponsor of this episode and uh real quickly eric let's uh, jump over and talk to lance wright or at least listen to him while he tells us uh, what's going on uh, with down and out books in the month of september hi frank and thanks for having me back to talk about this month's publications first up slings and arrows by tony black and tom maxwell a fast-paced psychological thriller set in Scotland with a police inspector investigating a number of cases that pull at the edges of a fraying society. Next, we have Lee Matthew Goldberg, who poses an interesting question. What happens when a stalker gets stalked? That's the premise of his new thriller, Stalker Stalked, published by All Due Respect. And since we last spoke, the third season of Guns and Tacos, created and edited by Michael Bracken and Trey Barker, has begun. With the third episode, Chimichangas and a Couple of Glocks, by David Hendrickson, releasing this month. It's good to be back, and I'll have some more titles to talk about with you next month. All right. Well, thank you, Lance. Uh, Anything grab your interest there, Eric? Well, I, I was honored to be included in Guns and Tacos uh, mm-hmm. in season two, and those books, uh, novellas, are so much fun. Those they just they hit you short and fast, and 
everyone has such a unique take on the the brief sketch that they give you of this this taco truck that doles out guns on the sly <laughs> and what you can spin out from that tiny prompt has been amazing i had a blast writing mine uh, and I, all the ones that i've read are, are just really really fun and interesting so i'm always excited to see the new season of guns and tacos come out what was the title of yours mine was called burritos and bullets <laughs> that is so beatner yes <laughs> that's awesome features i i got finally got my sister a cameo because those the stories take place in chicago where my sister lives so oh, yeah. uh, there's there's a rather rude blonde lady walking her dogs <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome if, if, any, if anyone knows you'd be like hey wait a minute that's gretchen <laughs> <laughs> i was fortunate enough to be uh, in that series as well i had the third episode in season one uh a euro and a glock which uh, is actually kind of funny. Uh, Michael Bracken and and Trey Barker are the creators of that, and and Michael pretty much I think takes lead on the editing, and he's a good editor. I I, yeah. I, I felt like, but when they were talking about doing it, they were asking about the Grifter song series and the, kind of the format and some of the things that I ran into because they have a very similar setup. Mm-hmm. And when they asked me to 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 be part of it, and I told them, oh hey yeah, this was at St. Petersburg BoucherCon. I said, I got a great idea, a Euro and a Glock. And he looked at me and he said, well, first off, it's a soft G and a hard G, you know? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but it looks good, you know? Cause it looks, you know? And he said, and secondly, a Euro isn't a taco. And I said, dude, it's a Greek taco. And he's kind of rolled his eyes. He said, go with it, you know? And I had, <laughs> I had the opening scene written at the air by the uh, time I was at the airport uh, coming back. And uh, I actually kind of put that conversation into the opening scene. <laughs> so, uh, so that's coming out. Uh, you know, I should mention too. Um, Lee Matthew Goldberg's been on the show. Have you ever had him on Writer Types? I have. Yeah, he's he's a great writer and, and a great guy. Uh, and he he seems one like one of those guys that he you know he had a couple of books out uh, on some of the big fives. And then he went quiet for a little while, and it seems like he's just flinging out a bunch of books uh, really quickly now. And I wonder if he's if he's in a similar situation as I am, where he was never stopped writing. You know, you, mm-hmm. even though you don't have a contract, you keep writing. It's what we do. So probably end up with a stack of manuscripts. And then when he finally was able to find a home for him, you can put him out pretty quickly. Well, he when he was on last time, it was for the ancestor. Yeah. Um, did you get a chance to read that? I did. That's that's a pretty wild concept on that mm-hmm. one. I was that was that, I can I can see where it was maybe a little bit too out there for uh, maybe mainstream publishing, if you want to call it that. But uh, definitely an interesting read. Yeah, and for those of you who want to hear more about that, uh, if you if you hop on the uh, the website there and type in his name, it'll, those episodes will come up on either writertypes dot com or wrongplacerightcrime dot com. You can hear 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 him from uh, both perspectives. Um, cool guy though, really cool guy. Uh, no. go, I think he says he he likes to go right in Central Park and and under a tree. Yeah. Yeah. That was weird. I, I've, everyone has their own thing, man. It's I've, I'm always amazed at people who write in coffee shops. I'm always amazed at people who blast loud music. Like anyone who does it differently than the way <laughs> you do it. It's, it's always like, wait, how do you even make that work? But yeah. I've had people look at the way I do things and wonder the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you've got a human skull in your office, so that that would, do. be da- that would be daunting for a lot of people to try to, to be too distracted to write. Is that guy looking at me? Uh, 
Well, um, speaking of different authors, um, we should probably get to the guest for, uh, for, for this episode. And he is a return guest, uh, James Swallow. He was on uh, previously, and we talked a lot about his uh, uh, Mark Dane series. Um, and his, he's also an author who does a lot of tie-ins to movies, television mm. shows, and video games, um, which is an interesting, um, I guess, uh, subgenre of writer, I, I guess you could say. That's a special skill, being able to take another property with characters that are already established and work that into an original story that that is a that's a unique skill in writing well now you've sort of done that haven't you i mean i know you can't exactly i don't know that you can exactly name names on this one because of ndas but you worked on a western series that you how much more can i say about this without getting yeah no that, it's <laughs> no it's it's not a secret yeah no I've, i wrote uh, i wrote two westerns uh, under uh, a pseudonym where it's one of those blanket pseudonyms where there were multiple writers all writing as this as aw hart this one uh, you know author um and i even did that a while ago with the the fight card series were were set up that way mm-hmm. uh but you know it was sort of, sort of an open secret but yeah you get a bible you sort of get the the characters and the and the the overarching setup not too dissimilar from the grifter song and the same mm-hmm. thing that you do you say hey i've got these characters this is the things that can't change about them but then take the story and run with it be creative you know you get hired for a reason uh, and it is it's it presents a unique set of challenges, but it, uh, at the same time, I'm always interested in the ways that those constraints can actually lead to a more creative solution on a lot of things. You know, I've, I work in TV, and sometimes you're dealing with both. Maybe it's the time that you ha- you have to get this all in, you know, in. 42 minutes so it can make one hour and you have to figure out a way to tell the story in that time. Or I'm always fascinated by, you know, old Hollywood where they were under the production code and you couldn't mm-hmm. say certain things. You couldn't show certain things. You even you had to figure out a way to imply and get around and, uh, and, and ended up in within those constraints. You actually got some really, really creative things happening mm-hmm. that might have been better. In, in a way. So I think when you take on a job like that, you you have to really push the limits of, of your own creativity to both let your mind run wild and yet stay on the rails. So it's a unique challenge and, and one that I've really enjoyed when I've done it. Yeah, I guess you would have with television, you probably also have uh, financial limitations like you, you, know, you only have three sets you can work on. So, oh, know, sure. Yeah, like I know. If everybody deals with that, you, you mm-hmm. come up with a great idea. It's, I mean, you know, I, I work mostly in nonfiction, but even like the show that I just uh, just am wrapping up now, it's it's about cars. And believe me, all the ideas start with like, well, and then then there's an explosion, or, the, or can we you know, can, can we wreck it? Can we modify? Can we take you know a Lamborghini and make it into a monster truck? And you know, it, it, it starts there, and it always ends up like, oh no, we can't afford it. We're spinning Brodies in in Yankee Stadium, and uh, no, you're not. You're doing it in the abandoned field up the street here. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, uh, you know, James is, uh, really good at, at, at this. Uh, you know, he, he's done Star Trek. He's done, um, he actually did some work on Highlander, which is one of my favorite, yep. uh, cult classics. The first one is the only one that actually exists. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think we're in the alternate universe where there were bad sequels, but, uh, check back with me. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but he also has a standalone work. And so, um, 
But let's go ahead and dive into the conversation with with James. I will tell you that uh, he was on before uh, about a year or two ago, about a year ago, I think. And so folks want to hear kind of a little more baseline stuff about him. And we talked a lot about Star Trek in that episode, too, because that was one of the bigger ones that I was interested in. Um, Jump on back and give that a listen, because I kind of picked up in this interview where that one left off for the most part. Um, so, uh, without any further ado, let's, uh, meet, uh, again, James Swallow. Well, Hey James, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, you are a, a rare return visitor to wrong place, right? Crime. But I will say that when you were on before, we had a very long and, and very delightful conversation, but there was a lot of untapped uh, potential there. You could have stayed on for another hour easily with, with everything. And now you've spent a year building more material to talk about. Um, so we'll see how long this goes. <laughs> we could be here till 4 p.m. But uh, I want to jump right into the big news, uh, or the more, most timely news anyway, is all that's going on with your Mark Dane uh, thriller series. And now this is your original fiction kind of flagship series. Uh, it's not a tie-in, it's your own work. And uh, it is up to six books now. That's correct. Now, because of the publication times in the UK versus the US and, and so forth, there's a little confusion even when I go on Amazon regarding these. So maybe you could uh, kind of dial that in for the, uh, for, for the listeners. Sure thing. Well, uh, in the US, the books are published by Tor Forge. And just recently, we're up to the fourth book in the series now, which is Shadow. So if you're a, a US listener, you will be able to pick up uh, the first books in the series, which is Nomad, Exile, Ghost, and Shadow. You'll be able to pick those up, the first three in, in hardback and softback, uh, and Shadow in hardcover. If you're a listener in the, the UK or any other part of the world, you will be able to pick up the uh, five first five books in the series. The fifth book is Rogue. That's just recently come out in paperback here in the UK. And I have just announced the, the title and the cover artwork for book six in the series, which is Outlaw. And Outlaw is going to be coming out uh, I believe towards the end of October in hardcover uh, in the United States, yeah, October of 20 in the United Kingdom, I should say, and then paperback early next year. So here in the U S we are lagging behind by a couple of books. It sounds like. That's right. Yeah. Um, we're hoping that we can kind of bridge that gap a little bit. Uh, I still have to kind of work out the details with Tor Forge and see uh, where we're going to go with the next two books, but hopefully we can kind of close that gap a little bit and, and get them out sooner rather than later. You described uh, Mark Dane in our previous interview um, as kind of the guy in the van, at least initially. Um, if if one were to think of a show like 24 as a baseline, you know, he's more of a Chloe than a Jack Bauer, but out in the van. Um, has that evolved over the course of these six books? Is he somebody very different now in this and uh, an outlaw than he was um, in the first book? Oh yeah, definitely. And that was kind of my intention from the, from the get go with this is going from that archetype of the, the guy who's always in the van, you know, the guy tapping away on the keyboard who always think of him as the kind of guy, he's the guy who could kind of set up your Wi-Fi for you. Right. You know, whereas <laughs> maybe the guy, maybe the guy who's the door kicker and the trigger puller probably wouldn't have the skill set for that, but would be able to kind of shoot a guy at, you know, a thousand yards. Right. And I wanted to just take, you know, the, the guy in the van guy and put him in the other guy's shoes, give him the other guy's job to do, take him out of his comfort zone. And so that's the initial germ of the idea with Mark. 
I had the idea of a character who who maybe could have been a field agent, but he, you know, he wasn't pushed. He wasn't in the right sort of frame of mind. He was taking the safer path by kind of taking the the sort of the backseat job. And then that choice is taken away from him and he's pushed into the front line. So I always had the intention that he would be somebody who could grow into being a bit more of an ass kicker, but he had to he had to get there, you know, he had to he had to go down that journey. So as the books have gone on, grown into the role of being a bit more of a hero, being a bit more capable. You know, he's learned to fight. He's learned how to use a firearm. But he still also has still has his kind of techie abilities and he still is a little bit of a geek at heart. So he hasn't lost uh, that previous version of himself, but he has become somebody who's a bit more competent, who can kind of stand on his own two feet. But at the same time, he still keeps all of the sort of negative traits of his character where he's, you know, he's got a fast mouth and it gets him into trouble and, and he's a bit too reckless for his own good. And he tends to overthink things. And a lot of that stuff is, is kind of swirling around the character as well. And he has a, a, a kind of a moral core to him. He, he sees himself as a sort of white knight kind of figure that he's trying to save people's lives because in the first book, somebody who's very close to him dies and he doesn't save their life, and he's carrying that guilt around with him. So in the following books, he's constantly trying to kind of recover that emotion. He's like, you know, I, I let this person down, so I don't want to let anybody else down. But of course, life doesn't always play that way. And so he's he's kind of dogged by this this issue that he can't let go of. But as the stories evolve, he slowly does let go of it because he gradually grows to understand that, you know, that this is a negative part of his character. So what I try to do is show an evolution, not just in his skill set and his ability, but also kind of emotionally as a character and a person. You know, he's compared uh, by some reviewers to, uh, you know, a, a British answer to Jason Bourne, um, which is a very favorable sort of comparison, but he sounds a little bit more like, uh, like someone who's closer to an every man than a character like Bourne. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm hugely flattered to be compared to the works of Robert Ludlum, who to me is kind of one of the the pole stars of of thriller writing. You know, and uh, somebody whose whose work and career I would absolutely love to emulate. But um, I think if yeah, if, if you want to pick a character from the kind of pantheon of of, of fictional thriller heroes. Look at somebody like, you know, going way back to kind of, you know, Robert Hannah in the 39 Steps or, or in a more modern era, look at Jack Ryan, somebody who is uh, an everyman character who has a, you know, a particular set of skills, but is not the sort of door kicker and a trigger puller. Those are the kind of characters I like to emulate. I, I think it's more interesting to, to write about somebody who isn't the toughest guy in the room, who isn't the fastest with a gun or with a kind of cool quip somebody who has to kind of work a little harder to get their victories. And I, I find myself in a little bit of a, a an interesting spot with this, um, this publishing gap, because I, I, I want to talk about the entirety of this series, but I feel like with the last two books not being available in the U S uh, we're really tripping through the spoiler landmine field. I mean, <laughs> a little yeah. bit, a, a little bit, but maybe we could start by talking a little bit about shadow um, which is now now available in the U.S. or will be uh, actually I think it was available in August of this year here in the United States. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So what's what's going on there? How how he how has he evolved to that point? What's the the tagline for that 
the interesting thing about shadows again having this kind of uh, little time lag here is shadows main threat is bioterrorism it's about um an infectious pandemic virus and of course when i was writing this uh we weren't in kind of like in the covid situation that we are mm -hmm. in now in real life so it's kind of it's weird for me now to kind of revisit this and talk about it in the context of what all of us are living through right now but the the, the key idea at the beginning of this is I wanted to look at uh, the sort of like the terrifying threat that is bioterrorism, because, you know, the, the, when I was doing my research for these, these books, I'm always looking for interesting little sort of bits of technical background to try and make it feel as authentic and truthful as possible. And some of the stuff I come across in my research, frankly, you know, would make your hair turn white. And, and one of these things was reading about the, you know, the, the bit, people trying to weaponize viruses like Ebola and Marburg and, and, and create, you know, a controllable tactical battlefield weapon out of this, frankly, horrific viral strain um, is something that I thought this is terrible. But the thriller writer in me said, but this is a terrific idea for a story. <laughs> and so, you know, uh -huh. uh, you know, marrying these kind of two impulses. So I wanted to take that idea and and kind of connect it with something which also i've been kind of seeing a lot in in sort of uh, politics and, and contemporary culture here in europe which is kind of like the rise of the far right is taking place and a lot of nationalistic sort of kind of attitudes are coming to the fore and i wanted to play around with these two sort of story elements to say here's here's the motivation for a villain to to use this weapon and here's the sort of terrifying power of that and then let's put our heroes in the middle of that situation and say well you know how do you deal with these two issues uh, and and stop something terrible from happening that's so hard to have the the biological weapon be the antagonistic force because i mean you can't shoot a virus <laughs> i mean you can't beat no. up a virus and and you can't even see a virus you know unaided by you know without equipment and so you know it's it's a very different approach and it's uh it's, it sounds exciting to me yeah i mean i i try to um you know, show the sort of like the terrible effects of this very early on and then place my heroes in a situation where once you as the reader go, okay, I know how terrible this is. And hopefully, you know, you care about these characters enough that once they're being put in a situation where they could be exposed to this virus, you know, your, your pulse is going to be pounding, your heart's going to be beating. You're like, oh my God, I don't want these guys to get too close to this because it's going to be, you know, terrible for them. So there's that kind of immediate sort of visceral reaction to it. And, and the other thing I try to do is with all of my books is I try to have a kind of, I like globe trotting stories. You know, I like the, uh, in, in the, in the mold of the, the Ian Fleming, James Bond stories, you know, the thrilling locations. So I try to take my characters to lots of interesting places in the world where they can be exposed to interesting characters and, and, and situations that kind of, again, it's, it's all about kind of getting my characters out of their comfort zone and just, I, I love to have them be just slightly out of their depth. You know, these are capable people, but they're in a situation where they're just having a kind of like, I'm almost past the point that I can handle this situation, but not quite, just on that cusp. It needs to be sort of, you need to feel like, oh, they could fail here. You know, this could go, at any second, this could go horribly wrong and everybody could die. And to me, that that's the space where thrilling drama lives. I think you're looking at it in a very uh, accurate way. Um, I'm looking at the cover for Rogue right now. W without spoiling it, I guess, for the U.S. audiences, what uh, what can you tell me about Rogue? Well, Rogue is is it's the start of the culmination. I say the start of the culmination because it's kind of a there's two things going on in this story. But 
uh, through the the previous four novels, every threat story I've had, um, I created a shadowy organization that has its hands in all of the bad stuff that is going on. And this organization is called the Combine, and it's a, a group of, of, of rich oligarchs who are essentially profiting off the war on terror and, and the kind of the, the fear that's prevalent in the world is they're deliberately farming that kind of sense of terror and making sure that people who have a grudge, you know, have the weapons that they need and, and circumstances are being kind of pushed to the fore so that there's always a sense of tension in the world. And these people are profiting from that. So for them, this kind of controlled chaos, a kind of stable instability, that's where, you know, they're making their money. And our heroes have been opposing them at every, at every step throughout the previous books is trying to make sure that their, their, uh, their evil plans go unfulfilled. And Rogue is the point where the bad guys say, you know what, we've had enough of you. And we're, you know, you guys have been messing with our plans for too long is we have a long game in mind and you just keep getting in the way. So now your time is up. You wanted our attention. Now you have our attention. Now you have it. And so Rogue, so the story of Rogue is um, what I wanted to do in the very first book I wrote, my character, Mark Dane, basically has everything taken away from him at the beginning of the story. And he has to kind of build himself up back to a position where he clears his name by the end of the first novel. And I thought, you know, that's such a great idea and, and it feels really powerful. And I thought, well, now's the time to do that. But once again, with all of my characters. So Rogue is the story about not just Mark, but the entire organization he's working for having their all of their abilities and their skills and their kind of the deep pockets of the corporation that they're working for, the private military contractor they're working for, all of that stuff piece by piece being stripped away from them. So the 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 conclusion of Rogue, um, I, I had the ending of the book before I even wrote anything, and I, I thought I want the end of the book to be my group of characters who had the, the crap kicked out of them, some of them who don't survive to the end of the story, but those who do kind of standing in the dust with the clothes on their back and a gun in their hand saying, this is all we have. And now we have to make a choice about where we want to go. What do we want to do? And that final payoff, that final decision, that kind of last roll of the dice, that's what the next book, Outlaw, is about. Which is uh, also a very beautiful cover. Um, and a lot of images that are kind of blended together here, you know, speeding, uh, you know, go fast boats, uh, you know, the, the stock market, digital ticker tape. I see the Eiffel Tower in a helicopter here. So I'm guessing France uh, is, is one of yeah. the locations. So those are, those are all kind of elements from the story, kind of call out to locations that appear or events that take place in the novel. Uh, when you decide where to put uh, one of these Mark Dane thrillers, um, and you know now that there's been six, plus I should mention um, for readers who are like, who's, who's James Swallow? I never heard of him, but he sounds like a cool guy. Um, you could check out his work for free. You can download, um, rough air, which is a, a novella, I believe kind of a prequel right, novella. Yeah. Um, and, and give, and find out that he's a very good writer with out spending a, a penny and then go spend some pennies on these other books. Uh, but when you set something in a particular location, how, how important is it to you to really bring that, you know, that location into the fabric of the story to make it almost a character unto itself uh, rather than just a, 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 you know, a cardboard, you know, backdrop like in the old Hollywood movies or something? <laughs> oh, yeah, very important. You know, um, I, I'm a great believer in kind of walking the territory. So 
if I can if I can physically go to a place that I'm writing about, I can. And and if I can't, I find somebody who has, and and try and get that kind of you know that sort of ground truth, that sort of uh, the the important sensory detail. I think is is the thing is there's always a sense of texture, um, just sights, sounds, and smells that you cannot really never translates through Google Earth, right? You know, mm -hmm. you can you can go on Google Maps, right? And you can look at any, well, pretty much any street corner in the world. And so you can get an idea of, of what locations look like. And I do, I do do that virtual kind of tourism and stuff, you know? So when I'm writing about a city or a location, I will, I will scout it as much as I possibly can is I'll talk to people who live there or I'll visit it if I can, or I'll use Google Earth or I'll just try and grab as much information as I can from diverse sources to say, what does this place feel like, you know? You know, what is what what is the if a police car is driving down the street, what's the sound of the siren? You know, do, do the alleyways smell? Is there, you know, stray dogs around? Is it like kind of is it hot in there in the middle of the day? You know, what's it like when it rains? Just all of these small little details which create a kind of sense of the world. And and I and I love the I love the work of of exploring stuff because you always find things you don't expect. Shadow is a really good example of this, actually, because I had uh, an idea for when I was plotting out the story, the, in the in the middle chapters, um, my characters were going to go to Iceland. They're going to stop off in Reykjavik and then change planes and go somewhere else. And I was going to have like one chapter while they were in Iceland, you know, just to kind of as a little bit of a breather while, where nothing was going to happen. And so I, I took a trip out there and I was so amazed by the landscape and, and by just the, again, the, the sort of texture of, of Iceland and Reykjavik and all of the kind of the landscape around it. That I thought I've got to write more of the book here because this is such a cool place to visit, and so um, you know I spent like a couple of weeks out there, just sort of like going out into the wilderness and and sightseeing and just sort of trying to pick up on the vibe of it. That I ended up rewriting the kind of the middle act of the book, so uh, a lot more of it takes place in Iceland, and I'm really pleased I did because I think that the the ability to sort of go there and kind of, you know, get my hands dirty and feel the sort of texture of the place. I think it translates well into the book. So hopefully people who read it will get a sense of what, what it's like to be in that location. And I try to do that as much as possible with every place I write about. The difference between a place that just sounds like a, you know, Hey, yeah, I heard of that place and the reader feeling like they're actually there. It lives in those little details and those specificities I mean, I think of, uh, have you been to Venice? Yes. So whenever you, you know, see Venice, like in the movies, um, or even when I've read about it, you would think the entirety of Venice is basically the Grand Canal, you know, <laughs> big wide open. And it's actually, at least in the area, you know, around the uh, uh, Piazza di San Marco and, 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 and all of that, the old city, it's very claustrophobic. It's very condensed. It's very windy and twisty. And, and, you know, it's like, it's easy to get lost wandering around if you, if you don't pay attention. And I, I don't know that that gets conveyed a whole lot in, in, in fiction that I've read or, or films or, or whatever that I've seen. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you get a, if you can, if you visit a place, you can get a sense for it, which I think you just cannot replicate any other way. I mean, some places I haven't been able to go to, like when I was writing the the second book, Exile, uh, a lot of that is set in uh, in Mogadishu, and you know I, I couldn't get travel insurance to go to Mogadishu to to research a book. But what I did do was find people who who'd come from that part of the world, and ask them, you know, what what is it like to live there? What is it like to 
What are the sights and sounds and the smells of it? What is the sense of the world? You talk about the kind of claustrophobic nature of, of, of Bat Street Venice versus the, the kind of version that we see, the kind of Hollywood Disneyfied version of it. You know, the kind of Epcot Center version of countries, mm -hmm. which is the kind of thing that you often see in movies. Um, and it's just not, you know, it, it's just not true to life. It's just not realistic. But the, you know, if you can, if you can go there, or if you can get someone who's been there to talk to you about it, you can, you can conjure that reality, and and hopefully you you take the reader on a on an interesting journey. And you know, and it's all about, it's not about kind of info dumping, you know, pages and pages of kind of travel log explaining what something's like. It's about finding, you know, the the telling detail, the the small thing that kind of helps you build the world in a in a larger way. And smells and vibe, for lack of a better yeah. term, are really parts of that that gets ne that get neglected. Um, but they are also ones that I really do think that bring it home. You know, what a good thing that your job allows you to go on these adventures, you know, and explore. Yeah. And it's tax deductible or at least accessible. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that, um, you know, that I'm, I'm in a position now where I can do that kind of thing. I mean, I, I, I'm, oh, I'm, well, I am very fortunate. I have to say that as a, as a youngster, my family, we travel to Europe quite a lot. So, so I had the opportunity to visit a lot of foreign countries at a young age. And a lot of that stuff kind of stuck with me. So being able to travel, I think, I mean, I always say that everybody should to travel as widely as they possibly can, because, you know, no matter what walk of life you come from, it's just a brilliant way to kind of broaden your perception of the world, um, because you never know what you're going to see. And if you're, a, if you're a writer, definitely travel, absolutely mm -hmm. travel, because, mm -hmm. you know, even if, you, even if you're not uh, writing in the modern world, you know, if, if, even if you're a science fiction or a fantasy writer or something like that, or you're, you're, you're writing in unreal worlds, traveling our world is going to expose you to things that, you know, it's, it's the stuff you don't expect, the stuff you don't know you're going to see. That's the really cool thing where you stumble across something or you, you just have like an experience, even just kind of sitting on a balcony somewhere, maybe, you know, you visit somewhere and say, oh, I'm just going to sit on a, sit in a bar somewhere and have a drink and watch the sunset over, over a different beach. Just having that experience, I think, kind of helps you get away from, from what it is, you know, what it is you've grown up with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned science fiction and that's a, uh, not exactly smooth, but certainly not clumsy <laughs> segue, uh, to some of your other work I'd like to ask you about. Um, but before we move on to that, I, I do want to remind people. So, um, coming out, um, in October is outlaw, um, shadow is now available here in the U S as of August and, um, and rogue, where does that fall? Rugs out in paperback right now in the UK. In the UK. And yeah. hopefully out sometime in the future uh, here in the US. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we'll get back to our interview with James Swallow, the second half of it, in a little bit. But now is the time on the show when I like to turn to the experts. And by experts, I mean readers, bookstore owners, and employees, particularly those that work at the mystery bookshops. Uh, and also uh, people who have been on the show, other authors, because uh, as Eric will no doubt agree, some of the best people to give you a book recommendation, uh, particularly in their genre, are other authors. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The the most voracious readers uh, are seem to be other writers. And sometimes it feels like, you, you know, you go to a conference like BoucherCon and you're like, wait a minute, are we just all writing and selling only to each other? <laughs> it just feels like... <laughs> 
Well, hopefully that's a big enough conference that you can at least get a few sales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in this episode, we're going to hear from uh, Abir Mukherjee, Craig Faustus Buck, Cynthia Kuhn, and Maria Marati. Take it away, folks. Hi, I'm Abir Mukherjee, uh, the author of the Wyndham and Banerjee novels set in colonial India. Um, I'm here with a recommendation out of a book I've just read. It is The Night Gate by Peter May. Peter's a Scottish writer, um, probably best known for his Lewis trilogy. However, this book is the latest in a series set in France. Um, it's his Enzo MacLeod series, uh, and this book uh, features two murders, one in the current day and one that dates back to the Second World War. Um, Enzo has to find out what the link is between the two, um, and it involves one of the most famous paintings in the world. I won't say any more, but it had me on the edge of my seat. The book is The Night Gate by Peter May. Uh, well, my name is Craig Faustus Buck. I write crime noir these days. Uh, I used to write a lot of television and film. And before that, I was a journalist. At the moment, I'm reading a book called The Lost City of the Monkey God by Douglas Preston. And it's a fantastic nonfiction story about an unknown civilization in Mesoamerica that was discovered in this really forbidden part of the jungle, one of the last territories on earth that's been unexplored. I highly recommend this book. The Lost City of the Monkey God by Douglas Preston. Hi, my name is Cynthia Kuhn, and I write the Lila McLean Academic Mysteries and the forthcoming Starlit Bookshop Mysteries. And I would like to recommend a series by Jennifer J. Chow. Uh, the first book is called Mimi Lee Gets a Clue, and it is delightful and humorous and wonderful, and you will absolutely love it. Jennifer J. Chow's Sassy Cat Mystery Series. It's wonderful. So my name is Maria Marotti. I'm a retired academic. I wrote lots of academic books, and then I retired, and now I write fiction. Um, and mostly I have two brands, and one is um, detective um, mystery with romance, with some romance, a question of class, which is going to come out in October, book number one of the uh, Captain Fusco mystery cases, and then book number two, of the same series that just came out a few months ago is The Etruscan Princess. I'm working on book three, Justice Denied. It will come out next year. Yes, one of my favorite books is Jack by Marilyn Robinson. I think everybody will like it. Well, it's beautifully written and it's an unusual character that stays with you uh, long after you close the book. It's, it's, it, um, a fantastic character development in a different era, the, the 50s and 60s in the South. So with all the prejudice and persecution and all that, but also the incredibly interesting personalities and family uh, situations and so on. <laughs> 
That's that's my recommendation. It's a fantastic book. Marilyn Robinson, Jack. All right. Thank you. So four recommendations, all very different. Uh, any of those grab you at all, Eric? Any of them? Uh, or have you read any of them? Well, I, uh, Jennifer Chow has uh, been on Writer Types on my show. So Mimi Lee Gets a Clue is definitely a really fun cozy. If, if, you, if you're into cozies, I think that's a great series. And that was a great start to, to that series. And then I had Peter May on uh, right when his book Lockdown was published. And that was such a unique conversation because Peter, Peter May has been around for a while and a very a great thriller writer, great, very established writer. But then to talk about his book Lockdown in the middle of the, well, the very <laughs> beginning, uh, really, of COVID-19. But everyone was like, really, are we really in the throes of a worldwide pandemic? And then here he comes with this book like it was ready made and it turns out it was like he had written it like a decade before and it had been sitting in a drawer and all of a sudden the whole world went nuts and he said to his agent he said you know i have this book and they're like great let's put it out in in six weeks go (laughs) well that's awesome that's awesome yeah Uh, as long as we're doing book recommendations uh let's let's throw something out there you got anything uh that you would like to suggest to people uh, you know, I got a chance to take an early look at a book called Under Color of Law by Aaron Philip Clark, who uh, Aaron has uh, been uh, one of my favorites for a long time. He wrote his very first novel called The Science of Paul. He very kindly asked me to blurb that book when we hadn't even met. He just reached out to me and I took a look at that and I thought it was amazing. So I've been following his career ever since. And this new one is it's a new thing for him. It's uh, his first book with Thomas and Mercer. So I think it's going to get a really, really wide, wide reach to readers. And I think it's going to be his breakthrough novel. It's a, it's a cop story set in LA, but it's very of the moment. Uh, Aaron is an African-American author and it definitely takes head on the sort of issues of, you know, police work and and the dealings with the African-American community and, but all wrapped in, in a really, really clever story and told in a way that it, it was really engaging. And I think it comes out uh, like first week or second week of, in October, but yeah, Under Color of Law is, I think is going to be on a lot of people's uh, radars this fall. I'll look forward to it. I'll throw out a couple real quick uh, as well. I got a couple of books for my birthday from my oldest, mm-hmm. um, very different books. One is called The Verge, and it's a nonfiction history book that basically covers the 50 years or so right around 1500. And I am amazed at how much stuff was going on then and how formative it was and all of the mercenaries and, and all of the political rumblings happening there in, in the center of Europe and, and the UK, well, what became the UK eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, really well written by a guy um, who has a podcast called The Tides of History. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anybody's a history buff, this is a pretty good one. Uh, Patrick Wyman is the author. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more in line with this show, uh, the other present I got was a beat up, partially stained, a little bit torn copy of Galveston by oh, then- uh, Nick Pizzolatto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for those that I guess, if you're listening to this, you know that he wrote True Detective, the mm-hmm. HBO series, uh, where the first season is a masterpiece and the other two seasons are pretty good too. <laughs> um, 
uh, and if you don't think that, go back and watch season two without thinking about season one, and you'll see why it's not that bad. Yes, people on the internet will tell you differently, Frank. <laughs> I know they will. I know in, in, in all caps. They will tell you differently. <laughs> I, I was. I think it's one of those situations where something is so good in the first the first iteration of it that nothing you write next is going to be. It's going to be compared, and it's so it's always yeah. going to be a, a you know rated a couple couple notches lower just based on comparison unfortunately yeah. uh but Galveston was uh uh was was interesting it was uh, very much written in that style in terms of uh uh had a little bit of of a literary quality to it and the the storytelling structure was interesting too um i wouldn't say it was a great book i would say it was a good book and if if you're wondering whether you should read it or not i give it a thumbs up but maybe just one thumbs up uh, so there you go, guys. Uh, seven possible books. Uh, one of those has got to interest you. And if those don't, uh, then uh, check out James Swallow and his 50-some books that he's written. Um, and let's listen to the second part of uh, the interview with him. We talked last time you were here about just I was astounded and, and jealous in a good way of how many different sandboxes you you get to play in. And we talked about a bunch of them. I would encourage people to go back and listen to that episode because I'm not going to re, you know rewalk those same paths. Although I do want to touch on Star Trek again, which is, is one of my favorite and one that you've worked in rather extensively because there's new stuff to talk about. Uh, when we talked last time, I can't remember if it was during the episode now or uh, once the tape stopped rolling, but you mentioned that you were working on something in the Star Trek world that you couldn't reveal at the time. And now that it's uh, a year later, uh, there's at least three things coming out of the Star Trek world, and one of them has to be that secret. That's absolutely right. Yeah, the, well, the, the, big, <laughs> the, the big thing is um, Star Trek Coda which is uh i'm I'm, it's 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 a trilogy of novels of which i am writing the middle one which will be out on the 26th of october i believe that's called the ashes of tomorrow and and i'm co-writing this trilogy with two of my good colleagues dayton ward whose novel is out i believe this month and that novel's called uh moments asunder and david mack who's writing the the final novel in the trilogy and that is Oblivion's Gate, and I believe that is coming out towards the end of December. This is an interesting way for a trilogy to come out. Usually, you know, a, a trilogy is written by the, the you know one author. Um, how much coordination did did this take? Oh, a hell of a lot, I imagine. Luckily, um, Dave and Dayton and I, we've all worked together previously on on other um, sort of linked series. Um, most recently we worked on a series called The Fall, which was a big five book miniseries uh, about an assassination set in the Star Trek universe. It was kind of the, the sort of the shot heard around the galaxy kind of idea. And, and each of us wrote these different books about how the political fallout affects the, the, the fabric of the Star Trek universe. We all know each other pretty well. So um, we're already friends, which is, which is all very helpful. And we're definitely kind of writers of a type. We had previously worked also on a loose trilogy of, of tie novels based on the uh, television series 24. So we'd um, kind of coordinate on that. Although those books, the, they were kind of like thematically linked. They weren't kind of like, you know, directly narratively linked. Uh, in this case, we uh, essentially sat down and, and broke this kind of mega epic story idea 
um and it was uh, it was amazing it was a, it was a really interesting challenge um dave i think probably is the linchpin i would say of this because he's master of excel spreadsheets and he created these these massive documents for us as a kind of anchor for us to kind of figure out exactly where our plots would go and we have conceived of a story idea which i would say basically changes the face of the 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 star trek literary universe forever we're we're um we're making some very very big swings with this well just for the uh star trek geeks in the in the in the listening audience um of which i'm one there are multiple timelines associated with with star trek both due to the films and different different novels which timeline i guess which universe uh however you want to phrase it does this fall in all of them oh you know, that's that's a glib, that's why that's it's so glib. sweeping huh <laughs> <laughs> that's a kind of that's kind of a glib answer well it's it, well yes and no i mean to to explain kind of how coda came about is we've had for almost the last 20 years now uninterrupted trek novels coming out from myself dave dayton and a whole bunch of other really talented writers after the last star trek movie at the time which was star trek nemesis the kind of last story with the next generation cast which is patrick stewart and all those guys the, that was it that was kind of like okay well there's there's no more new star trek coming out now and then when new star trek did start to come out it was in a completely different timeline which was with the, with the you know chris pine and zachary quinto playing new versions of, of kirk spock going off in a different parallel reality so even then we were like kind of well that's not affecting the stories that we were telling so we were carrying on past the point of the end of the the star trek tv shows and the, and the movie star trek nemesis carrying on with these characters evolving and changing them some of them were dying and then came back to life some got married and had kids we blew some stuff up we rebuilt other things we did a lot of interesting cool ideas with these characters but now in in recent years star trek in television form has has returned and we've had uh, first of all, we had Star Trek Discovery, which was a kind of prequel series. So that was kind of said the beginning of Star Trek history didn't really kind of affect our novels too much. But now we have uh, Star Trek Picard, which is the return of um, that character. That storyline in that TV show follows on from the end of what was established in the movies. And of course, it's it's not fair to expect a TV viewing audience to have read 20 years of Star Trek novels. Mm-hmm. When, certainly when you look at the percentage you know, the number of people who watch tv star trek versus the number of people who, re- who read star trek novels it's maybe you know one percent of that audience has read a star trek book and the rest of them are just people who you know then they know the shows from from the from what they've seen on the screen so it, we couldn't expect them to follow this this 20 years of complicated convoluted continuity and so we were in a situation where we were saying, well, what do we do? We have this ongoing literary Star Trek universe that we create, and we have the one that's on television, which is growing and evolving and, you know, and is going to be with us now for you know, another five or 10 years with all these new shows that are coming down a pipe. And that, that leads, you know, what is on screen leads the books. And these things are fundamentally incompatible. So what do we do about that? You know, we're already writing novels that are based on these new shows, and those books are incompatible with what has gone before. What do we do about that? Now, the if you're a fan of the Star Wars franchise, this may sound very familiar to you, <laughs> because of course, you know, the Star Wars franchise went through exactly the same thing: years of tie-in novels and their expanded universe, and then one day someone comes along and says, "Well, we're going to do another trilogy of movies that's going to be taking place after." Return of the Jedi, and you know, once again, we can't expect the viewing audience to have read all of these books. 
so we're going to tell the story you know in a in a sort of branching continuity and with the with the star wars novels the decision was made that they would be rebranded they they called these books the legend series so that rebranding kind of says like well you know this didn't really happen officially in the star wars universe but it's a great story you know you still want to read it it's right there you know and uh and certainly they're cherry picking stuff from the star wars books to bring into the kind of ongoing continuity of what they're doing with star wars right now and why shouldn't they some great story ideas in there but i think a lot of star wars fans were upset by it because they kind of just switched the lights off and they said we're done with this now and there was there was no resolution to it, it was just it was just over one universe over in the star trek universe we found ourselves in a similar situation what do we do are we just going to kind of turn the lights off and say, well, we're done with these books gratefully you're, you're writing science fiction so you have a few yeah. more options than if this was a, a mystery novel or a romance yeah absolutely so we looked at that and said well let's do what they did with star wars let's it, we have the opportunity here to create an ending a coda if you will so why don't we why don't we do that why don't we tell an, an epic story that ties up the, the continuity that we've been writing for the last 20 years and resets the clock in such a way that you could kind of put down the last on the Coda series and then start reading the new iterations of the books and everything would proceed street, you know, uh, seamlessly. So that's the goal. Um, I guess I'll have to wait and see when we get to the end of the year, when the three books are out, whether we've achieved that goal, whether we will be vilified um, by Star Trek fandom for, for not doing a great job. I mean, I, I got to tell you now, we, we put our hearts and souls into this and it's definitely, it all comes from a place of love, but it is a big epic story and it's, it's tragic and it's, you know, dynamic and it's exciting and it's heartfelt. Uh, and it's a disaster movie story. It is, as I've, as I've often joked on my blog, I said, you'll laugh, you'll cry. You won't know who'll die. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to, it's that kind of narrative. You know, it, it is, it is epic with a capital epic because at the end of the day, you know, we thought let's, we are, we have to go big or go home with this. So with the Coda series, we're telling a story that brings together as much of the Star Trek universe as we possibly can. We've tried to tie up hundreds and hundreds of loose ends, even in small ways, just to kind of pay respect to the stuff that's come before. And also to, to kind of tip our hats to the, to the legion of other writers who created Star Trek fiction through the past 20 odd years to sort of say, you know, we see you and we respect you and we respect the work we've, that you've done. And then to also to our audience to say, you know, thank you for staying with us for the last 20 years. Thank you for putting in the energy and the dedication for reading these books and caring about the characters that we created and the characters that we've shepherded and bringing that all to a close. It's, it's been a pretty tall order, let me tell you. It sounds very ambitious. Um, I look forward to it. You talk about you know paying homage to these writers who have written in this literary Star Trek world, and uh, clearly you're you, you know you're part of that group. Um, I mean, you wrote an original series episode that we talked about last time you were on the show, um, and since you were on the show last time, one of the uh, new Star Trek books that came out was a Star Trek Picard. Uh, novel called the dark veil so would this be one of those books in that uh, uh you know that, that does have to get tied in uh by coda or would it be placed after that in the timeline well well this as it's a picard novel it's existing outside of the the continuity that we've created with the other star trek novels which was a really weird thing for me to do because i wrote that before i started work on coda so 
yeah, I was writing about characters that I'd written about in the Star Trek literary universe and, and starships and crews that I'd written about in the literary universe and saying, well, you know, what do we bring some of that stuff across or, or do we not? Is, mm -hmm. you know, are we, are we allowed to do that? How much wiggle room can I have? How much new material can I invent? Uh, mm -hmm. And it was a very kind of interesting line to walk. Um, a, a very unique challenge. It's one of the things about writing uh, tie-in fiction. It is like, you know, some people might look at that and think, well, you're just painting by numbers, right? That's all it really is. And, and there, is an, there is a degree of that, but it's more like being given a kind of a, a, a sort of the sandbox to work in. And it's like, these are the borders of the sandbox and you can't go beyond those, but you've got all the rest of this great open space to play around in and have fun in. And, you know, the, the challenge is not just taking, you know, a paint by numbers picture and just putting in the colors. It's working inside a sandbox and saying, how do you still tell an entertaining, interesting, clever story while still working within all of these restrictions? And that is, that is a unique challenge, which is, it can be daunting. Some people find it just too restrictive and, and, and they're not interested in doing it. I love the opportunity, frankly. You know, I, I love the challenge of, of, of working inside kind of a, a set of guidelines and still coming up with something that hopefully is good. Uh, you, you wrote a discovery novel too called Fear Itself. Uh, how was it diving into that uh, prequel? I mean, that's even, you know, before the time of the original series. That was, uh, that was a fun job because I was working on that for a year before I was allowed to talk about it. So there was uh, myself and a team of a few other writers who were involved in it and some people uh, on the TV show as well. And one thing I have to say as well that's been really great is that the, the staff working on the Star Trek shows that are being made right now have given us unprecedented access as tie-in writers. Never in all the years I've been doing this have I had as much of a kind of you know, the door swinging both ways for them saying, you know, here's what do you need? What do you want? Here's everything you need. And even for us saying like, you know, have you thought about this idea and, and actually being able to pass ideas back the other direction? I mean, the example I always cite is the the bridge crew on the USS Discovery in the first season. Um, basically, they all they had was surnames for those characters. And one of our tie-in writers said, well, I'm going to give them full names and I'm going to like write biographies about all of them. I'm going to give them, give them all backstories. All of those backstories ended up going back the other way into the TV show, which is oh, wow. which is a rare and unprecedented thing, and yeah, it really made us of. feel. It's great as well for us writers on the books because it makes us feel like we have a seat at the table, even albeit in a, maybe the kids' table, you know, but in a small <laughs> way. But we're still yeah. in the room, right? Which, yeah, you're still getting dinner, right? <laughs> yeah, so you know, which is a nice change from you know from from the previous version is to you know follow the same analogy. We would be lucky to get scraps that are flown out of the window, right? But mm -hmm. get to rummage through the garbage can after. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, this was, you know, and this is really great to be able to have that opportunity to kind of even reach out to someone and say, I want to do this in a novel, you know, is it okay to do that? Uh, and in fact, developing the storyline for uh, Fear Itself, originally I was working very closely with Kirsten Beyer, form, another former tie-in writer who's now executive producer on Discovery and, and Picard. And we pitched a whole different story idea, which in the end they said, you know what, we want to do this on the TV show. Um, so, uh, this is a really great idea, but we, you know, it's, it's such a great idea. We want to do it on the big screen, not on, uh, not in a novel. And I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. So I had to come up with a completely different novel, but it's nice to see, you know, in, in preceding episodes, uh, following episodes of the show, you know, I, I would see stuff come up about, uh, the novel's mostly about the, the character of Saru, the, the, the alien science officer on the ship. 
and seeing stuff in following episodes where I was like, oh, there's that little idea that I contributed about this little piece of his backstory, just, you know, one little thread going through the tapestry of that character and being able to look at it and go, oh, I made that. That's that's kind of nice to see that there on the screen. But yeah, with so with um, to go back to the, the the kind of the generation of the idea is I had I spent a year being sent uh, scripts for the show and and every every morning I would turn on my computer and it would be like oh here's the photography from the day's previous shooting you know for you to take a look at if, to kind of make sure everything you're writing is syncing up with it and it was just incredible to have this unprecedented access. And then to go online and see people talking about the show and getting it all completely wrong and having to bite my tongue and go, no, that's not what's happening at all. It's it's this totally other thing, you know. But that was that was really fun. And then finally, when we had the opportunity to sort of talk about it and say, okay, we're we're working on this and we had this amazing access, that was uh, that was so cool. And out of the back of that, um, the discovery novel I did, everybody really liked it. And so they said to me, well, you know, the Picard show is now coming up the pipe. Do you want to do a story for a Picard novel? And again we were working on uh, a story to, to cover the background of uh, one of the supporting characters, Seven of Nine, who comes back from Star Trek Voyager uh, to, to be a new, to be sort of a recurring character in, in the, the Picard show. Played by Jerry Ryan. Jerry Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we worked on uh, a novel idea about her for quite a while before again, they, uh, they said, well, you know what, actually we want to do this on the TV show. So I was like, oh, okay, here we go again. So, but you know the, that is the nature of the beast is is like i said earlier on you know when you're writing a franchise based product when you're writing something based on an, uh, someone else's intellectual property wh whatever that property comes from whether it's a movie or a game or a tv show the the ip leads and you must follow and you you know you you serve at the pleasure of the license holder so if they say well we want to do this thing in this way you have to kind of salute and say yes sir and you don't get to argue about it and that is the nature of the beast so, and sometimes, you know, those choices are made that you don't like as a writer and you know, maybe decisions that you think, well, I wouldn't have done it that way, but it's like, you don't have the choice to argue about that, you know, mm -hmm. because you're further down the totem pole and you have to, you know, that's the position that you're in. That's the deal that you make. You want to work on this franchise. You have to accept that you may come across something like that, where a choice is made, you don't like that. You still have to work with. It's not an equal collaboration for sure. Right. There's a junior partner no. and it's you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, the power dynamic is way the other way from the tie-in writer. But you know, the the upside of it is for for a writer. I mean, you can look at it and say as a writer, well, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to put myself in that situation? And you know, that's a legitimate question. I've had other writers who don't do tie-in say to me, you know, aren't you just kind of, you know, manacling yourself to this thing and being dragged along behind it? And I was like, yeah, that that can happen. And I have worked on franchise projects where it has been horrible. And it has been, you know, really, really hard work. Fortunately, that's the exception rather than the rule. Most of the time, it's it's the fun opportunity to, to be given this box of toys to play with. And it gets your your work and your name out there to a readership that maybe wouldn't previously have been interested in reading you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the reach is incredible for something like yeah. Star Trek or, or some of these others that you've worked on. That, I would say for anybody who works in times, that is probably the the primary value out of it you know you don't tend to earn a huge amount of money unless the book is massively successful but what you do get is you get your name on a bookshelf in every bookstore in the country in the english-speaking world rather prominently too i mean looking at the discovery uh cover right now fear itself and your the author's name is just as big as the 
television show subtitle, uh, you know, Discovery, uh, and the title. It's very prominently displayed. So that's got to be huge to absolutely get, yeah. get the eyeballs on that. I mean, you know, I've had Star Trek books have got me onto the, the New York Times bestseller list. And, and that's maybe a place that I might not have been able to get to myself unless I did a lot more work. So, you know, having, just having those sheer numbers out there means that, you know, people will know my name and it, hopefully readers who will come to my work. I mean, I've had this happen is readers say to me, well, I read one of your times and, you know, I like your style. So I've made the jump and I'm, I'm reading your, uh, your original fiction. And, uh, and that's always so rewarding to see that people will, you know, kind of follow me across into a different genre. We talked last time you were on about some of the video game tie-ins that you've done as well. Specifically, we talked a lot about Deus Ex, which is a great series. Uh, but I noticed uh, you you are now working on a tie-in to the Splinter Cell universe, which, if anybody doesn't know, is a Tom Clancy property. I'm very excited about that, I have to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a cards on the table here. I'm a longtime video gamer from from way back. And the... A fan of the Clancy books in their heyday, definitely, and and a player of all the the Tom Clancy video games. So titles like uh, Ghost Recon um, mm -hmm. and uh, Splinter Cell, and uh, and most recently, you know, The Division. All of those uh, are games that I've played pretty much every iteration of them. I've also been lucky enough to to do a little bit of work on the Ghost Recon video game series and also on uh, The Division too. So. Um, you could say definitely I'm a card carrying fan of the of the Tom Clancy verse, as it were. And uh, Splinter Cell is definitely um, up there with with my favorite sort of video game characters is with, you know, Sam Fisher, this kind of like, you know, lone kind of hero in the night and the darkness prowling around with his cool tri trifocal goggles, you know, shooting bad guys in the quiet and everything. Such a cool character and such a cool series of games. Uh, way back when, I remember I was writing a thing for my blog and I said, you know, uh, IPs that I would love to work for. And I made a list of all the possible different franchises that I'd love to write a story for. And up at the top was stuff like James Bond, Marvel Universe, Star Wars. But I also included ones that were, you know, not quite as big. And, and, and in the video game world, I said, you know, I would absolutely kill to do a Splinter Cell story because I think Sam Fish is such a cool character. And he has, you know, such an interesting world that he exists in. So fast forward to like the, the end of last year and a, a publisher that I've been doing some other work with who I also uh, I co-wrote uh, a tie-in for a video game called Watch Dogs Legion with a, a friend of mine, um, Josh mm -hmm. Reynolds. And uh, that's published by Ubisoft, which is the games company that owns the Tom Clancy franchise. And I said to the, the guys at uh, Aconite, the publisher, I said, you know, if you guys do the Tom Clancy stuff, call me because I'm a big fan. You know, I'd love to do something. And um, I think Ubi were really happy with me with the work that I did on the Watch Dogs book. And, and because they, they'd hired me in the past to work on the video games, they said, well, you know, what would you like to do? And I was like, Splinter Cell. Well, you know, bit their hand off. Splinter Cell, absolutely, I want to do Splinter Cell. <laughs> and so that's what we've done. Uh, and the novel's called Firewall. And it's going to be coming out in February next year. Um, going to be the first in a series. I'm not sure if I'm going to be writing the whole series. Is They've asked me if I want to do more books in this series or maybe even do more books in some of the other Tom Clancy verse stories. And we're having a discussion right now about what I'm going to do next. But certainly it's the start of an ongoing series of books that will be written by me or other writers, which is really cool because it means more new adventures for, uh, for Sam Fisher and his family. And it's just been a lot of fun. It's been a real blast to do it. It's, it's a really sort of fast-paced, action-packed story. It's got some interesting sort of uh, elements in it that I've really enjoyed writing. And, uh, and I got to bring 
my love of the sort of the lore of the Tom Clancy universe in. So we're pulling bits of elements from all different directions. I got to kind of go on a deep dive. I gave me an excuse to go back and play the games again, which is, you know, playing video games and saying, well, this is research. This is very important what I'm doing here. And so it was a, it was a lot of fun to, to, to get my hands into that. Um, and, you know, I've just, I've just had such a, such a fun time writing this character because it's, it's been, been a favorite of mine for so long. And now finally being able to sort of put words into the mouth of that character, uh, I, I got a real fanboy buzz out of it, I have to say. That's how you can hear it in your voice. I, uh, you know, I actually never played much of, of, of the splinter cells until I think blacklist was the, the last one. That's right. Um, and, and I really enjoyed that because, uh, it was very difficult. It was a, it was a sneaker shooter, not a shooter, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so you had to be strategic and you, you couldn't just blast in, you could certainly use weapons when you needed to, but it had to be a lot more cerebral uh, as an approach and so the firewall when is it set so after after blacklist there's kind of a little gap and then uh the character sam fisher starts popping some other ubisoft games so he he turns up in um in ghost recon wildlands and then later on he turns up in in ghost recon breakpoint and then uh in uh rainbow six but this is set before any of that happens so it's um, I think we we kind of landed on a period. I think we we're like a couple of years after the end of Blacklist, but before all of the stuff where he starts popping up in, in other people's games. So, so if you played Blacklist, he's not a million miles away from that character. He's, uh, but he's also kind of. I, I wanted to show a maturing Sam Fisher as well because I mean he's not a young guy in the very first games when we first meet him. When he's played by Michael Ironside, you know he is this kind of craggy kind of like. I always think of him as kind of like, you know, stealth dad. That's who this guy is, right? You know, he's, he's got that kind of, he, yeah. and he, you know, and he's got that kind of veteran sort of sense about him. Uh, and I really like kind of playing into that. So definitely in Firewall, he's, he's in a sort of, he's, he's still an active um, operative and he's still going out and sort of kicking ass and taking notes, but he's very much in the sort of veteran mentor kind of role. And we're also um, introducing uh, Sam's daughter, Sarah, to bring her, um, from she's been a sort of previously a kind of subordinate character, a, a kind of damsel in distress sort of character. And uh, Ubi said, "Well, you know, we want to give her a little bit more to do. We want to kind of build her character out." So we were introducing her into the story and giving her more sort of action-oriented, more kind of exciting stuff to do, giving her more agency. So what we have is Sam as the sort of cranky veteran father figure, and, and Sarah is in the story as this kind of like the new recruit who's kind of like being exposed to this stuff um, for the very first time. So there's an interesting sort of father-daughter dynamic going on there. And, and I'm pulling stuff from the earlier games where, you know, their relationship has not always been a good one. And it's really fun for me to kind of put them both in this action scenario, but also underneath all of that, have them trying to work out their personal issues. So it's a story about, you know, taking down bad guys and doing cool stealthy stuff. But it's also a story about how these two characters are kind of moving on with their lives. And there are people in the world who would kind of chuckle at the fact that we're having this conversation about a video game character. Um, but the reality is, I think we've gotten to a point in the zeitgeist where video game characters have, have really become just as valid, I guess, for lack of a better term, as television, film, novels. Um, they're really part of the fabric of, of our, our collective fiction now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I agree. You know, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, tie-in stories and these kind of ancillary stories, whether they 
whatever format they're appearing, whether it's like, you know, you take a character from a game and put them in a comic book or a novel or a cartoon show or what have you. The things that are great about these stories is they can open up areas of the character that maybe the primary material can't explore. You know, if you're playing a, a Splinter Cell video game, it's about the action of the game in the moment, you know, and you can't look into that character's inner workings and go, well, what's he thinking about? What's going on in his mind? You know, how do we, we explore their persona? You know, if it's an action game, that's not really what that sort of thing is about. You know, he's not going to have time to stop in the middle of a combat scene and go, well, you know, I'm going to have a think about my feelings now. You know, that's just, <laughs> that's just not going to work. But in the novel, you can do that. You can stop and smell the roses a little bit and say, well, let's get inside this character's head. Let's provide you with an internal viewpoint, that unique inner voice where we can say, you know, what makes this character tick? What makes them interesting? And also still tell an exciting story at the same time. And and that is the key, right? It still has to rock and roll, but you have time for a little bit of introspection where you don't necessarily have that in the primary medium. Yeah. It's that, it's that inner viewpoint, I think. That's the thing. That's the unique mm -hmm. thing that you can get from prose writing is that you can... You can get inside a character's head. I think you're absolutely right. You've written your own work. You've written for tie-ins for television. You've written tie-ins for video games. Well, you've written tie-ins for movies as well. And I, uh, last thing I wanted to discuss with you before we go is a, what I think is an underrated film that you wrote the adaptation for that I didn't know existed and, and will be seeking out. And that is The Butterfly Effect. That's a, I've got fond memories of that because that was one of the, the earliest books I wrote, actually. I'd, I'd done a couple of tie-ins. I'd written some, well, my, my first, the first books I ever wrote was a kind of YA steampunk Western series. That was the, scene, that was the Sundowner series I wrote in, in 2001. And then I did a little bit of tie-in fiction for the Warhammer 40,000 universe. But I was looking to kind of, you know, expand my palette and write different stuff. And a publisher I was working with, said oh we have the license to do these some times based on these new line cinema movies and they said how do you fancy writing uh, a novelization of a horror movie and i said i'm not a horror guy that's not really where my sensibilities lie and i was like i'm not really sure if i'm the right pick and i said well it's not like you know it's not a straight up horror movie it's got science fiction elements it's a time travel story uh and they sent me the script and i read it and i was like oh this is kind of interesting now before before the film was made yeah i think well no i think I think the movie was in post-production at that point. The thing with these timelines on these is, is always it's very, very tight. It's kind of like, you know, you've got three rigs to write this, go! You know, because the, because the book has to be out at the same time the movie does. And the thing that really won me over is, is I said, well, you know, this is an interesting thing. You know, I don't know if I can translate it well to, to prose. How much freedom will you give me to mess around with the narrative? And they said, do what you like. Do whatever you want. You know, whatever you need to do to make it work as a book just you go right ahead and do it and so once they gave me that i was like this is terrific so i got the opportunity to sort of add a lot of stuff to the book and just out to the narrative and and the way i ended up approaching it was i thought to myself imagine if i was a movie director and someone had handed me this script and said direct this film and then i was gonna and i thought just take that idea of the movie you would direct and then write the book of that rather than trying to write something that is a shot for shot kind of translation of what you would see on the screen of the feature film i would take the source material which was the script and you know the movie would be one version of it and the book would be a different version of the same story so that way if you enjoyed the movie you could read the book and you get the same experience but it would be different 
and vice versa. Because I figured, you know, if you've already watched the movie, you've seen that, right? You like that story. You don't want to get, be delivered that exact same thing again. You want a slightly different version of it. So um, I got to do that. Um, and one of the great things was is that the script they gave me um, was quite a lot of the early material with the, the main character as a young boy um, was cut because uh, it was a star vehicle for Aston Kushner. And um, obviously the TV, uh, the, sorry, the, the, the cinema audiences, they wanted to get him on screen sooner because he was the, he was the heartthrob, he was the hero. So a lot of the stuff with the younger version of the character where it's played by a, obviously a younger actor, all of that was cut. So I got to keep all of that stuff in. So I got to build all this extra content and put extra material in there. And uh, the movie has, I think, like two or it might even be three different endings. If, uh, if, you, if you watch the, the Blu-ray, there's like a particularly bleak ending, I think, on the Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, it, and I got to the end of the script and I said, you know, this ending, I don't, I've got to be honest with you, not the, not the ending from the Blu-ray, but the one that's in the movie. I said, you know, it feels a bit open-ended. I said, can I, would you let me, mess around with the ending and i thought they're never going to say yes and they said yeah i'll go right ahead so i tweaked the ending and i tried because i wanted it to be a bit more of a hopeful ending whereas in if you watch them for the final version of the movie i think it's kind of ambiguous about whether it's a happy ending or a sad ending um but after reading the book after writing the book i'd, I'd gone through so much with these characters i wanted them to have a happy ending so the novel ending kind of ends on a bit more of an upbeat sort of thing and i was really pleased i, I got to do that and the funny thing was, the amazing thing about this was, after the book came out, I, I had people writing to me saying, what do you think of the movie they made of your novel? <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of funny that way. And, and another thing I got as well is, because Aston Kutcher was a big hit with the, you know, the, the, the teen crowd, um, I was getting uh, emails from kind of like 14-year-old high school girls who were sort of reading this book going, wow, I really loved your novel. I'm, I'm doing like a, 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 a treatise about it for my English class. Can I ask you some questions? And I thought, well, this is an audience who would never have read the kind of stuff that I normally write. <laughs> but, it was, but it was really sweet. I got, uh, I got a lot of really, really positive feedback from that book, which was completely unexpected because it, for me, it was just kind of like, oh, this will be a fun job. And with most tie-ins, you know, tie-ins for, for movies are kind of like, they're given the same amount of respect as maybe like the lunchbox or the t-shirt, right? It's like, comes out, it's in the bookstore, movie's out, bang, 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 done, right? It's gone. And that's it. And they don't print very many of them, you know, and you certainly as a writer, you don't make a lot of money out of it. But um, it seemed like weirdly enough, the butterfly effect kind of had a life after, after that. And, and I went on eBay and I saw someone selling like a copy of it for like $300. And I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I thought it was hilarious. I thought I should have kept all of my comp copies and, and sold them off on eBay because it was it was incredible. That was going to be my next question: is is it available or is it out of print? I mean, it's yeah, it's it's out of print. So I mean, the only way you're going to find it is I don't think I don't think there was ever like an ebook edition or anything like that. Um, so the only way you're ever going to find it is in a secondhand bookstore somewhere. I mean, I only have I have like one copy of it because i gave away all the copies like stupidly not realizing it would be worth a lot of money afterwards um and it's funny as well you know after the book came out it was so we didn't expect it to be a success and the movie was like a minor hit for that kind of audience and, and it sold really well and the book sold out um and by the time we kind of realized the book had sold out the the contract had got to a point where we couldn't reprint it so it was like, oh, we're done. You know, we, we can't actually make more of these because of the nature of the contract that we signed. But my editor came back to me and said, do you want to do, do you want to do like more stories? And we actually kicked around the idea of, of turning it into a trilogy. 
and doing two new original butterfly effect novels that would carry on the story with the character. And, uh, and in the end, that got torpedoed by New Line Cinema, who decided that they wanted to do that, but as a movie. So they did do a follow-up movie. I don't think it had Ashton Kutcher in it, and it didn't do anywhere near as well. And that was kind of the end of that. Yeah, I haven't seen the second one. I think it was, I mean, hopefully it wasn't a Highlander 2 sort of situation for him <laughs> or something. But um, that's, well, I'm disappointed that it's going to be hard to get a hold of because I, I'm very interested in reading it. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> again, uh, all these different sandboxes you get to play in, including some you've created yourself, I am uh, very jealous in a not necessarily green with envy sort of hateful way, but in an awestruck way. Um, I had a great time talking to you on the last episode and, and this has been a lot of fun as well. And maybe you can let people know where they can get your books uh, right before we sign off. Well, thanks, Frank. I mean, I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to come back and talk to you about stuff. Is Like I said last time, it's never a chore to kind of chat about writing because I'm lucky enough to say I love what I do and I love to talk about it. And if you want to find out more about my stuff, the kind of one-stop shop is jswallow.com. That's my website. Go along there. You can find the the Mark Dane novella that you mentioned previously, Rough Air. And also there's there's some some digital samples of some of my books up there. And there's a blog. And it's basically a list of everything I've done. So if you want any information about any of the stuff I'm working on currently or stuff I've worked on in the past, that's where you're going to find it. And if you want to um, send me some messages or, or ask me some questions, the best place to do that is if you look for at JM Swallow on Twitter. And I try to post on there pretty regularly, um, make myself available to people uh, at kind of all times. Well, I've been on your site, spent some time there, and I can tell you that there are a lot of things on that website that in two hour-long podcast episodes we haven't even touched on. So I would encourage people to go and mine some more information and check out the stuff that you found interesting about these conversations. And uh, uh, James, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Well, there you go, folks. That's a James Swallow, a part due. Um, having him on the show a second time. Honestly, uh, could have him on again about a month from now and still get a good solid hour of fun discussion because uh, so many of our interests overlap. Eric, anything from that interview jump out at you that uh, that you, you thought was interesting? Well, I'm always impressed with anyone who uses sort of that rip from the headlines, uh, current events in their books. I'm I'm always a little leery to do that because you worry like, oh my gosh, am I going to write it? And it's it's going to immediately be dated or, or I guess maybe in the bigger issue for me is like, do I have a take on something that's going on that's going to be unique mm-hmm. and worthy of, of, you know, putting in a book and having other people read it? I always feel like, eh, no one cares about my opinion on that, but- <laughs> When when people can take those kind of things and uh-huh. and do do the the proper way to do it, which is now folded into a really good mystery or thriller or, or just a good story, that that's something that I really admire. You know, you 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 took a different approach to what I would call your thriller. I mean, most of your stuff is, I think, dark action with a little bit of comedy in some instances. Um, but you wrote a book called All the Way Down a couple of years ago. Um, has it been that long? A couple of years, right? Uh, yeah. Well, writing it or publishing it. I, mean, I, it's been, I don't you know. know. Time, isn't, well. time isn't real right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but All the Way Down is a thriller. And yet it's it's kind of a concept thriller where a guy ends up trapped at the top of this uh, tower that's controlled by a gang in a deserted 
portion of town that uh, well actually a part of town that was never developed it was partially mm-hmm. built up and and then it's a floor by floor what's he going to encounter next sort of situation um i would say it, kind of a diehard sort of uh thriller would would, would that be out of line to suggest no, no. I, I think the vast majority of what I write usually starts as a movie pitch. I think, you know, my, my brain is wired and my writing history is so steeped in screenplays and, and, and in movies that that's still the starting place of, of almost all my stories. I, I think all of my books at some point have been or can be described as cinematic yeah, I think you you and you write very visually as well. You don't spend a lot of time in the in the character's head. You spend a lot of time looking at what the character's doing and saying. Yeah, well, I, and I think that the biggest takeaway from learning screenwriting and one that I think is very important and is often not taught to novelists, and, and again, especially in thrillers and and you know anything that has any sort of action, anything that has a driving plot. The idea that's very, very top of everyone's mind in screenplays, since you can't necessarily get into someone's brain in the same way, is that character is defined by action. And you, you, you can learn everything you need to know about a character by the things they do and then the, the steps they take in the face of a, a tragedy or trauma or just stress. And I think that's such an important lesson to learn for writers is that you don't need to dig, you know, a hundred feet down into their backstory. You don't need to know every little wheel that's moving in their brain as they deal with the situation. You're going to learn more about the character, or at least you're going to learn everything that you truly need to know by how they react, by the actions that they take. Do they run towards the burning building or do they run away? You know, that's going to tell you a lot about a character rather than just sort of having to dig in and understand the whys and have them muse about it and, you know, get into that sort of just getting stuck in your brain sort of MFA type of, of writing. So I think that's one thing that I've definitely tried to impart to, you know, thriller writers or, or crime writers in general, anyone who ever asks for advice. I think that's one of the most important things that you can take from a screenwriting discipline and apply it to novels that is often overlooked. That's a great, that's a great point. It's a great point. And I mean, it's a, a, a illustrates the show don't tell idea yeah. in a very specific way. You know, one of the things that came out of that interview for me was um, how his character, Mark Dane, you know, the guy started out as like, if it was an episode of 24, he wasn't Jack Bauer. He was the guy mm. in the van. And yet over the course of the series, he's developed skills and he's become maybe not Jack Bauer, but he'd be a good assistant Jack Bauer maybe. Right. And, and so there's that, that protagonist character progression throughout the series. Now you've written a number of series. Uh, the, the books we wrote together were in a series. Um, there was some progression in that, in those, but uh, in the other series that you've written, have you, have you experimented with that? Have people changed significantly throughout the course of a series or are they in such a compact time frame that there's not a lot of opportunity for that? No, I think you have to have a character change uh, or if in the case I'm, I'm thinking of like my, the devil doesn't want me was the first in, in a three book series and it was about a hitman named Lars. And he definitely goes through significant changes in that first novel. And you sort of play out his character arc of someone who kills people for a living and, and makes money doing it to reaching a point where he decides, I don't want to do this anymore. This is not who I want to be. And then 
taking the steps to try to fix that and change it and in fact save a life along the way and you sort of get to the end of that book and he's gone through that journey and now where do you go if his journey may be over so it's you know what can you do with that character taking them forward even after they've made a change well okay now he's trying to get pulled back in he's trying to trying to live this new life but his old life won't let him go. And so that can be a, a certain character progression. How does the character then react to you know, the, the history that they've left behind? But I think, you know, the, the thing about a character like Mark Dane, is like, yeah, you, you want to start off following a character. And if you like a character enough and you, you're curious enough by the end of that first book to see where they are going to go, you have to have them go someplace. And, and I think that's one reason why, like, I'm never that interested in characters, you know, both as a reader and a writer. Like, I, I know I could never write the world's greatest hitman. I could never write the world's most amazing super spy. Because, like you say, like, where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. But a character who starts off in the van and then gets thrown into the front lines like that. Okay. Now, you, now you're moving somewhere. I, I can yeah. take a journey with this character and you can watch them react. And it's both interesting, you know, for, for, to see what the character is going to do in that situation. And like I say, it's, it's a progression and, and to see how they grow and develop and adjust to their new situation. I think that's, that's just great storytelling. Yeah. And, and, you know, throughout the course of a, of a book, you might, take a character and break them down to the point where basically, you know, they're at that darkest moment. And then what mm-hmm. do they, where do they go from there? And, and one of the things I liked about this interview was hearing James talk about how he's kind of done that in a meta way with the series itself, where you get to the mm-hmm. you know end of, of a particular book there. And that's where these characters are not just Mark Dane, but his entire team. And so um, of course you're going to stick with them, you know, at that point for another book or two, you know, even if, even if you prefer the man in the van and don't dig the Bauer version of characters, <laughs> now you're invested. Right. And so you, yeah. you, you stick it out. Well, and it, it, even, you know, with Bricks and Cam, I, I think by the time we got to the third book, we both knew that we needed to, take these characters in a different direction. So I think the way we ended that third book, mm-hmm. I, I th- hopefully I think a lot of readers did not expect where they sort of go off into the sunset at the end of that book, because it is, it, it's a very different, I mean, for, for Cam at least, I, I've put him into a situation that is a complete 180 from how he started on page one of, of book one. And I think it's uh, it, it's rewarding to a reader who makes it all the way through a series, even just a trilogy, to give them uh, a, a journey along the way. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and for them to be somebody different than they were when it, when it when they started. Yeah. Um, the Bricks and Cam uh, Jobs series. Uh, if people are interested in that, that is going to be uh, on promo on the 18th. If you're listening to this uh, anytime near when this comes out, the 18th of September of 2021, if you're listening to this at a different year, uh, for on the if 18th, not, you missed it. <laughs> it's still out there. I'm sure, uh, 18, 19 and 20, it's going to be on a special, the, uh, getaway list. This finale that Eric's talking about will be free. The other two will be just 99 cents. So grab them while you can leave reviews, um, and then go check out the rest of our work. That's how this free and cheap, stuff works. So 
help us out there with uh, doing your part. Uh, just to close out the interview with 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 James, you know, we I won't go into the the Star Trek stuff that we talked about. I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but but I I, I geeked out about that more than enough in both interviews. But I did think it was interesting what he said about his tie-in novel for the butterfly effect, how he was allowed to take the script that they gave him and then deviate you know, quite a bit, including the ending from that script. And then, you know, that they're basically that's out of print now. And as Mm -hmm. soon as I got off the line with him, I went on to eBay and I found a paperback copy for about 23 bucks, 23 bucks for a used paperback. That's not cheap, but it's not 300, (laughs) like you said. So, and I ordered it. So we'll see if it gets here. Cause uh, I really enjoyed that movie for, for, uh, for what it was at uh, time, kind of time altering flick did you see it the butterfly effect a uh, long time ago i've i've I only saw it only saw it once i you know i'm always of the mind that you treat movies and books completely differently it, it's it is a different medium and everybody who says oh the book was better i'm always like okay just sit down <laughs> but it's fascinating to see it go back the other way now to see it, to see, you know, someone might pick up that paperback and say, well, the movie was better, or they might pick up the paperback and oh, they, oh, they should have done this with the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if, if you like the book and you like the movie, isn't that a bonus? Isn't that just the greatest yeah. thing ever where you yeah. have both things that you can like separately? <laughs> yeah. I think of the Bosch series is a good example. You know, you got all these Harry Bosch books and, and Michael, Connolly. Connolly is is a good writer. Bosch is a good series. I've enjoyed it. I actually like the Lincoln Lawyer series a little better, to be honest with you, though, hmm. um, which is strange because that's a defense attorney and I used to be a cop. So you'd think I'd have some bias there. <laughs> but my point is, is that the television show Bosch, um, you know, with Titus Welliver and and, uh, and and crew is different in, in a lot yeah. in some large ways and small ways. And it's really good. So I think that's a really good example of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Because the minute you get other people involved, the minute you cast a character, the minute you you, you get other writers other than the person who originally wrote the novel, it, it's bound to change. And like we talked about, too, it's like if you don't want this movie to be eight hours long, you're going to lose some scenes that were in the book. And it might be your favorite scene. And, oh, I'm so sorry. But you know what? The book is still on your shelf. It's always there for you to read. <laughs> That's not going to... Th- th- no one goes back and revises the novel after the movie comes out. You know, you can enjoy both. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um, well, before we get uh, out of here today, um, I did want to ask you, Eric, what uh, what are you working on now? I am working on restarting my career, Frank. I am, uh, I'm on uh, a, a multi-year agent hunt, uh, I, I, but uh, I'm, I'm in talks right now. I'm, I'm in discussions that I can't uh, talk about. But uh, yeah, trying to sort of get back on the horse and uh, get back out there, you know, with a, a, an agent pitching books and. Uh, seeing what comes next. And I think the big thing for me is I'm trying to be patient, which is not my forte. I'm trying to let the system work. Publishing, as you know, it can be a glacial process. A little broken. uh, A little bit, a little bit. But, uh, you know, working in the TV and film business, it's it's all very familiar (laughs) in the ways that that it is broken. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm 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 still writing. I'm sitting on six completed manuscripts that uh, I'm trying to get out there. Wow. 
Uh, and, you know, also just giving myself permission to, to take a break because I wrote a lot of words in not a whole lot of years. And it, you reach a point where you're like, you know what? I, my kids are growing up very fast. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, but oh, you, yeah. Usually, you usually write like at 11 o'clock at night, though, and they're already in bed. I do, I do, but you know, it, it's still, it's just, it occupies your brain and, sure. and you know, it's, it, and they're getting they're, older and they're not going to be in bed at 11 o'clock anymore at some point. Oh my so. God. They're, <laughs> they're already, yeah, no, I've got a high schooler now and I'm, I'm I look at her and it's like, I'm like, babe, it's 10 o'clock. And she's like, what? And, and I, I don't want to be like, I have things to do. There, <laughs> there's a whole world that goes on once the lights go out in the rest of the house. I'm up for four or five more hours. You're disturbing the ecosystem, my darling. Uh, it's true. <laughs> Put your head on the pillow. <laughs> That's awesome. So the Beatner update is uh, sitting on a pile of books and and looking for the right way to get them out into the world. That's right. I'm waiting to be uh, to finally become an overnight success after 12 years of publishing novels. <laughs> Well, Frank, I, I know you uh, are even less likely than I am to ever take a break. You always have something cooking, either your solo novels, you've got things working with a bunch of other co-authors. So what, surely you have lots of things uh, <laughs> upcoming. Uh, well, you know, it, it, this is the first uh, episode after the uh, the summer break. And so um, things have been surprisingly slow, actually. I mean, uh, my collaboration with Lawrence Kelter came out uh, in, I think, April. Uh, no Dibs on Murder, kind of a dark comedy action sort of mystery. Um, and so that's out there in the world. Um, but other than that, uh, it's it's just stuff in the pipeline. I just finished a book called The Ride Along that needs to go through revisions that will take place in the Charlie 316 world. So mm. uh, I'm, I'm working on it with, uh, with my Charlie 316 co-author, Colin Conway. Um, but it is a story that I wrote the first draft of that has been pretty near and dear to my heart. Actually, your book recommendation uh, under The Color of Law, it, it kind of falls in that same general territory in terms oh, yeah. of uh, what, what it examines and takes a look at. And I'm right now I'm working on the uh, seventh river city novel, uh dirty little town, which oh. uh, already has a book cover. Thanks to you. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's really about it right now. I've got other stuff in the queue, uh, but that those are the things that are working on right now. Excellent. Uh, well, I want to say it was great to have you on the show. You've been on the show before a couple of times, actually, but the first time ever co-hosting. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I, I guess uh, I can go ahead and pitch the fact I'm going to be on uh, Writer's Types here coming up. That's right. Yeah, you're going to return the favor and be my co-host uh, coming up. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll reach uh, different listeners and we can uh, let people know about that bricks and cam promotion that's going to happen and get some, get some cheap books into people's hands. Well, we will get uh, into the ear holes of more people because writer types is a very popular uh, podcast. And so it's going to be great to be on it. I'm riding your coattails once again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, so I want to say thanks to you, Eric, for coming on to the show and helping host it. Uh, also to Down Out Books for, as always, sponsoring the show. Uh, our friendly book recommenders, Abir Mukherjee, Craig Fostisbuck, Cynthia Kuhn, and Maria Merati. And then, of course, uh, to uh, James Swallow for coming back on the show and, and over there in the UK in the evening, sitting through another hour of me telling him how jealous I am about the fact that he gets to write Star Trek novels and they're canon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime, we are going to have another return guest, something I don't do very often, and now I've doubled down on it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Scottish uh, author Owen Mullen uh, will be on the show again to talk about his uh, newest book. Uh, that's next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Uh, until then, this is Frank Zaffaro. And this is Eric Beatner reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.